Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Hello, Haley. It's great to be here. And Haley Kanaf. Hey, Amber and Alex. I wanted to start us off uh, with uh, some feedback I've gotten from, you know, what I've heard is like one of the hottest podcast segments in the streets right now, which is (laughs) where we ended last week's show with my little uh, quite half-baked sermon on legal names in the world of sports. And I knew, I said it at the time, you can go back and check the tape. It was incomplete. I knew there would be addendums and they came in. So I just want to make that clear. I love this interaction. I really like the idea of listeners out there being like, how did Alex not bring up whatever you're about to tell us? So hit us with a few that were omissions that we're not correcting for. Look, I've been flooded, honestly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, um, a couple of these occurred to me like moments after we stopped recording. But I do just want to say, if anybody cares, I did forget the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame catcher Johnny Bench, which is like such a layup. Now, I will say the reason that I forgot that is because bench is also a sports term. And I think somewhere in the recesses of my mind, I just always thought of Johnny Bench as like referring to the bench that athletes sit on. Sure. But obviously, mm-hmm. obviously it's a legal term. Huge miss by me. He's also a very famous baseball player. I don't blame you because, yeah, when you think of it as Johnny Bench, like my first thought is just, damn, Sitting what a terrible, yeah, what a terrible name for an athlete. That's like um, <laughs> the Dodgers have James Outman. And I'm yeah. like, you don't want to be the out man in baseball. <laughs> no, unless you're a pitcher, which he's not. He plays the out. Exactly. But anyway, the other one, this is so stupid because this isn't even one person. There have been many athletes across all sports that are named Chambers. And oh, I totally sure. forgot that. Um, yeah. I thought of the Miami Dolphins wide receiver, Chris Chambers, a great sort of journeyman receiver. And then Tom Chambers, the Phoenix Suns big man. One of the all-time great in-game dunks, if you want to uh, ever see a man like beasting like a foot above the rim, Tom Chambers dunk. Anyway, I do have to give a shout out to former Law 360 or former Pro Se guest, and maybe she, and she even hosted, I think, once, uh, Carrie Ben, who DM'd Amber and myself, who highlighted, and I'm so mad about this, Jacoby Myers who is a wide oh, receiver. It's perfect. Yeah, I know. Haley, I knew this is, what I'm, this is what I'm getting to. So Jacoby Myers is a wide receiver who plays for the Las Vegas Raiders right now. But I actually meant to mention this to you, Haley, last year when he was on the Patriots. And on the show, I mentioned Ben Jarvis Greenellis, who was called the law firm. Jacoby and Myers is the name of a law firm that is currently in operation. They have 300 attorneys in all 50 states. And that is just a huge miss by me. They are everywhere. I don't know what to say about it. I'm so glad Carrie is the one that brought this yeah, to our attention because too. she is a loyal listener, also a yes. dear friend, and on top of that, used to run our sports wire. So that's true. she got all the bona fides to bring this to our attention. So good on her for reminding us that, that that's maybe the, the top of all the names we could have mentioned. I even had an idea, and I I had like a notes app entry on this last year, 
about just some half-baked offbeat idea about, because it was when he was on the Patriots and I was going to mention it to you, Haley, and be like, do you know there's a guy named Jacoby Myers and there's a law firm named Jacoby Myers? <laughs> and then I just completely memory hold it and just like totally forgot. I mean, it's on me too. I, I'm sure I connected the dots whilst watching Patriots football last year. Jacoby and, and Myers. And I just mean, never saw, brought it up. Uh, well, there you go. Look, this yeah. is why we have people in our lives that will reach out and tell us when we miss something big and important. And we're very appreciative of that. I do want to transition us, though, now to the actual meat of today's show. And I want to give all the listeners a little heads up. We're going a little off of our normal format because we had two really big and interesting stories that we thought we had great guests that could come on and talk about them. So we're doing two interviews today. Alex, do you want to talk about the one that you led? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I love when you say that we're going off schedule here, or off script a little bit, because you it's very reminiscent of like when you go to a restaurant and they say, we do things a little differently here. You know? <laughs> and really, it's exactly how a restaurant is always run. Well, I mean, it's one or the other. It's either very normal or like really weird. Like, we'll, we'll, we're going to throw the entree at your head. And if we miss, you'll get a free dessert or something. Or otherwise, it's just like, we'll, we'll do it family style. Anyway, <laughs> yes. Um, but we do have two very, very interesting guests this week. I had a very interesting conversation with Carolina Bellotto, one of our senior reporters down in Florida. And we talked about a medical malpractice case that involved the family at the center of the Netflix documentary, Take Care of Maya. And this was, again, it was a malpractice case that involved claims from the family of a young girl who was treated at a hospital and basically alleged that the hospital had domineered her care in a way that kind of severed the family from contact with her. The girl's mother eventually committed suicide, and this all culminated in a uh, over $260 million damages verdict that caught a lot of national attention. And Carolina was tracking this very closely. And there were a lot of quite unusual twists and turns in the trial in what was already a quite unusual case, but uh, a very illuminating talk with Carolina. And please stick around for that. Yeah, we're going to have that one in just a minute. And then a little later in the show, we're joined by Katie Bueller, who's our Supreme Court reporter. And, you know, I can't resist talking about this anytime we have news. Katie comes on to talk through the Supreme Court's code of conduct that just came out this week. We get into, you know, is it what we expected? Will it do what the justices hope it does to quell some dissent and concern about ethics on the bench? So we get into all of that with Katie. She gives us a real rundown of what we need to know about that code of conduct. Yeah, a couple of fascinating stories to discuss this week. Very eager to get to it all, and uh, let's not delay any further. After the break here, it'll be uh, me with Carolina talking about the Maya trial. The family at the center of the Netflix documentary Take Care of Maya was awarded more than $260 million in damages in a medical malpractice suit last week after a Florida jury ruled that the hospital providing care to young Maya Kowalski mistreated her and pushed her mother to take her own life. 
The tragic case drew national attention and featured a number of unusual twists and turns at trial. Law 360 senior reporter Carolina Velado provided daily coverage on the trial, and she joins Pro Se this week to talk us through the surreal scenes that unfolded in court. Welcome back to the show, Carolina. Hi, thanks for having me again. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a fascinating case that had an unusual fact pattern and then even maybe a more unusual trial proceeding, but we'll get to that. I think the thing we want to start with, though, is just let's understand the somewhat complex but very important to understand factual like dispute that happened here about the care of this young girl in this hospital. What happened that led us to trial? So it's a really complicated history, but uh, the relevant part starts October 7th, 2016, when Jack and Beata Kowalski took their 10-year-old daughter, Maya, to Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida, for severe abdominal pain. At that point, she was in a wheelchair. She had been receiving high-dose ketamine treatments for about a year before that, including a five-day ketamine coma in Mexico for complex regional pain syndrome which typically is a, it's a chronic pain condition that presents itself after an injury, usually to an, a limb. Your limb will heal, but you still have this like really sharp searing. It's supposed to be very, very painful. Maya had developed like pain all over her body mm-hmm. after what was an asthma attack the year before, I think. And a lot of doctors had suspected conversion disorder, but her mom kind of latched onto CRPS. So she came into the ER at All Children's demanding 1,500 milligrams of ketamine for Maya. And to give you some context, that's enough to sedate a horse. And it alarmed the doctors a lot. Mm -hmm. And for a number of reasons, they began to suspect medical child abuse, and they made two calls to the Florida Department of Children and Families. A few days later, she was removed from her parents' custody. Because DCF was never really able to find a medical foster family to take her, she ended up staying three months at the hospital while the dependency action played out in court. And um, on January 7th, 2017, uh, Beata Kowalski hanged herself in the garage. Maya was released to her father's custody about a week later. And that brings us to the lawsuit. Can all children be held liable for Beata's suicide and a jury in Venice, Florida, said yes. Yeah. And I want to get into that exactly because, I mean, this is such an interesting collision of parental negligence, if it exists, and then like the public social services systems, for-profit healthcare systems, whatever, you know, all this stuff kind of colliding in this weird kind of jurisdictional morass. But I have already said here that the jury found in favor of the family. Can we talk about exactly what they found? So, they, they found in favor of the family, family on all claims, basically awarded the plaintiffs what they wanted, exactly what they had asked for. Uh, there were a lot of claims in the case. It was trimmed a fair bit before the trial and even during the trial as well with some directed verdicts. What went to the jury were um, first two false imprisonment claims, one for the time between October 7th when Maya entered the hospital and October 13th when DCF removed her from her parents' custody. The court had held that the hospital couldn't be liable for false imprisonment after that because it was DCF's decision to remove custody. Yeah. But for that like week or so, mm-hmm. they they argued the plaintiffs argued you didn't let her leave. The other false imprisonment claim was related to a 48-hour period from October 18th to October 20th when Maya was placed in a video surveillance room. 
this was ordered by a doctor so that they could see what she could do physically when she thought nobody was watching. There were two battery claims against Kathy Beattie, who was a social worker who worked at the hospital and was assigned to Maya's case. The first claim was related to two sets of photographs that were taken of Maya on January 6, 2017, before she left the hospital to go to a court hearing and after she returned. In the photos, she's in a sports bra and shorts. And the aim was to document the condition of her skin. Um, her face is cut off in the photos, but you can tell she's she's not like happy or comfortable with these. The other battery claim was related to an incident where Kathy Beatty had to break the news to Maya that she wasn't going to be able to go home for Christmas. The way Maya tells it, Beatty pulled her into her lap without permission, hugged and kissed her and said she wanted to be her mother. Beatty denies saying that and denies kissing Maya, but she said Maya was distraught and in tears and asked to be hugged. So she did. She was providing comfort. There was a fraudulent billing count. Uh, the argument here was that all children's billed for CRPS, even while its doctors denied that Maya had it. The hospital produced records showing that they billed for a number of different things and argued that CRPS was the diagnosis she came in with. And it's common to bill for that at first and then, you know, change it. Mm -hmm. This count was almost dismissed entirely mid-trial by the judge as the evidence for it was pretty thin. But he decided to keep it in and it was a win for the plaintiffs. And finally, there are the, the two big claims, intentional infliction of emotional distress for Beata's estate and for Maya. One of the questions on the estate claim was, did all children's, quote, engage in extreme and outrageous conduct that caused her suicide? Yeah, that's kind of what I really wanted to drill down yeah. on. Yeah, because, I mean, the mother took her own life. Right. So the arguments here were that basically that there was this, this conspiracy against Beata because the plaintiffs argued that because she was pushy and demanding, you know, essentially advocating for her child in the ER, therefore the hospital staff. They, she pissed them off, right? Yeah, <laughs> and right. Yes. To the point that they conspired against her and wanted to destroy the family. Uh, that was that was the overarching theme of the argument. And the plaintiffs argued that there was this overwhelming maternal instinct that like she was pushed to suicide because she saw no other way to protect her child. And that obviously held sway with the jury because they it did. I mean, the story you're telling is like very intricate and like very kind of involved on a number of different factors. And so like to find on that many claims for this amount of money is quite remarkable, which is why we're talking about it. And the reason, honestly, I mean, you you approached us uh, to uh, to come on pro se and you said that the things you saw at trial were um, a little bit atypical. And that's and this is already in a pretty like factually atypical case, a very specific fact pattern in the case. And I just wanted to give you some room here to tell us about the things that you saw. We'll get in later. It's just sort of like the overall reaction to this verdict and all that. But like I did want to hone in on at trial. What were some of the things that stood out to you? Well, there were a few things. I mean, first of all, the, the oddest thing about this case is that you don't really see a medical malpractice case often where the patient is doing better than before the alleged malpractice. Um, Maya was in a wheelchair when she got to all children's. She's 17 now. She's no longer on any pain medication. She has not taken any ketamine since she left. She walked into and out of the courtroom on her own multiple times and by all accounts seems to live a relatively normal teenaged life, though obviously there's a lot of unresolved trauma stemming largely from her mother's suicide. What also stood out was how much this was a, a facts versus emotions case. The plaintiffs had just a few bits of evidence to back up their case. 
uh, but they they ran with it and they they embellished quite a bit on top of it. Like that's what what got to me. The the plaintiff's attorneys seemed to just repeatedly state things that were easily refutable. Such as what? I mean, it's obviously an emotionally charged case. I mean, that's very clear. I mean, but what do you mean by that? Well, so biggest example was what we'll call it the defecation incident. <laughs> um, in, <laughs> okay, in, let's yeah, yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> in opening statements. The plaintiff's attorney, Greg Anderson, said that Maya was, and I quote, put into a room and left for 48 hours with a commode just out of reach because the hospital wanted to prove that she could get up and walk. Instead, she defecated herself. It jumped out to me when I heard that. Like, it's pretty awful. And I thought, I wonder how the hospital is going to try to explain that away because I'm, I'm not sure you can. Yeah. But then the plaintiffs presented their case. They never showed any surveillance video. So I started to think, well, maybe the video hadn't been preserved. That's a problem. Then during the defensive case, the hospital showed two snippets of surveillance video to the jury of a nurse brushing Maya's hair and another one moving her from the bed to the wheelchair. And then the hospital moved all 48 hours of surveillance video into evidence. And that's when it dawned on me, the defecation incident never happened. But Anderson yeah. brought it up again in closing arguments. There was also, I mean, just little things like Anderson went on and on about a Christmas dress that was allegedly never delivered to Maya because... You know, Kathy Beatty, the social worker, wanted to spite the family or, or something like that. It was mentioned over and over again. Then the hospital put Kathy Beatty on the stand, showed the jurors the email from Jack asking if she'd gotten the dress, the response from Beatty that she had delivered the dress to Maya, and then a time-stamped photo of Maya in the dress. So there were multiple things like that where I thought, gosh, he's just shredding his credibility with the jury. I can't believe he's doing that. But it worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that well, that is the thing about about jury trials. I don't, and I mean, I guess we should say like, there's nothing to say that either of those pieces of evidence would have made them decide a different thing. But I do take your point that it's about that, the credibility, right? You don't. It was want the way to the lose... story was told to them. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's about you don't want to lose credibility with the jury, and I thought he would lose it, but I clearly <laughs> apparently I'm wrong. not. I'm yes. wrong. Um, the other unusual thing about this case was how big a role the jurors played throughout the entire trial. In in Florida, jurors are allowed to ask questions of the witnesses. Mm -hmm. and oh, wow. Generally, yeah. yeah, so it's standard, I think. I'm pretty sure it's standard. Generally, in trials I've covered, you'll get one question, maybe two from the jury for a witness. Most of the time, there aren't any questions. That was absolutely not the case here. The, the jurors, there were 12 of them, six seated jurors and six alternates, though they themselves didn't know who was who. They were very engaged and every single witness got a slew of questions. Some were insightful, some were a little off the wall. Um, <laughs> my favorite was one that was asked of a PICU nurse practitioner who testified that Maya was cursing at the hospital staff and saying repeatedly, I want to be sedated. One of the jurors asked if she was sure Maya wasn't singing, I want to be sedated. I mean, I had to stifle <laughs> making the reference myself, obviously. Yes. And well, I'm glad that someone asked about it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've I've reached out to the jurors. I've, I really wanted to talk to them just because they were so active here. Um, I've managed to get only one alternate on the phone so far. She's pretty unhappy about the verdict, and she said at least two other alternates she's spoken to feel the same way. So I think it was just an interesting case of uh, it was just who got seated on this jury. You know, I mean, there were clearly differing opinions among mm -hmm. the twelve. 
but the six six who ended up there went you know entirely pro- for the plaintiff well and that kind of brings me to where i wanted to leave it with you i mean it's a i mean again i'm repeating myself but i mean when you consider the like very specific fact pattern all the different kind of factors that go into something like the power of a hospital to like basically detain a person and then like the social worker at the hospital which also involves like a city office component all that stuff we are about a week out from this decision and it's an emotional case i mean somebody died there were there we we've got a you know quarter billion dollar damages verdict on our hands i'm curious to know i mean i you're down there in florida what what has the reaction been like is there like I mean, are there lessons to be gleaned or are they just or is this just going to keep kind of unspooling in the appeals circuit? I'm so curious to know where we land on this. So few things in terms of the impacts of this case, I think the the big concern here among healthcare workers and other mandatory reporters is that they, too, could be hit with a multi-million dollar judgment for making a call to DCF before the yeah. trial. The attorneys for the hospital told me that that's why they took this case to trial. They wanted to make a stand for mandatory reporters. And the mandatory reporters I've talked to have told me it's it's a tough call to make. And when you say mandatory reporters, you're talking about hospital staff that is like compelled to do a certain thing in a certain context, right? I don't so want to get... So basically, yeah. anyone who works with children yeah. is a mandatory reporter. So a teacher is a mandatory reporter. Oh, okay. Um, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. child care worker, a nurse, a doctor... These are people who, if they see, or, you know, cops as well, like if they see signs of abuse, they are required by law to report it. And yeah. even if it's a suspicion of abuse, it doesn't have to be, they don't have to prove the abuse. They just have to say, this could be abuse and we need to, we need to call it in. Yeah. And that's and, important to understand given how this right. played out. Cause like right. there are mandatory reporters who were at play here. They perceived that she might've been being abused. And even if you want to credibly say they might've overreacted or like just took a specific set of protocols in their reaction to what they perceived and now puts them on the hook for liability. Right. So they did get immunity. So so here's the thing. By law, mandatory in Florida, at least, um, failure to report a child child abuse can oh, be a yeah. felony in Florida, in Florida. Right. So if you you don't report something, something horrible happens, you could suffer criminal penalties. And technically you have immunity for reporting. So before trial, the judge actually granted the hospital immunity for the report. He said there was, they did it in good faith and there was enough evidence to warrant making the call to DCF. Now, what ended up happening though, and I think this is going to be the biggest issue on appeal. Okay. And I think the judge even mentioned that the parties were using this as both a sword and a shield, right? So he said, you've got immunity for this part. We're not going to relitigate the dependency court action. We're not going to relitigate whether this was medical child abuse. Now, the issue is whether whether it was actually medical child abuse, uh, because you have immunity for reporting the suspected child abuse. Mm -hmm. The issue is that the plaintiff's attorneys argued their whole argument, as I said, was Beata ticked off the whole hospital staff with her demands and her pushy demeanor. And that's why they falsely labeled her as an abuser. And the plaintiff's attorney brought up Munchausen's by proxy multiple times during the case. And the hospital was not allowed. They tried to bring in like reams of evidence showing that there were actually a ton of signs of Munchausen by proxy and lots of signs of medical, lots of evidence of medical child abuse. And they weren't allowed to bring it in or argue 
that there was actually medical child abuse here. So, and I think the fact that, so, you know, in the post-verdict press tour, the Kowalskis have been saying that this has vindicated their mother that, you know, showed that, that she wasn't abusing her child. And, you know, I think the hospital has got to be sitting there thinking, but that's what we tried to show. <laughs> um, right. So, so I think that's going to be, I mean, there are multiple, I think, avenues for appeal here, but I think that's going to be the big one because even though, yes, that was the subject of the dependency court action, it colored the entire trial. And I think the hospital feels that it was not, that it was prejudiced significantly by not being allowed to bring in, you know, a lot of that evidence. It's a fascinating case. I mean, you couldn't even really cook up a sort of specific set of facts that would challenge this collision of laws in this way. But uh, a highly fascinating decision, and you uh, covered it beautifully for us. And, uh, and Carolina, thank you for uh, coming on Pro Se to break it down for us. Greatly appreciated the conversation here. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a great service, Sun Inc. Sun Inc. is a provider of non-attorney legal services, offering affordable legal support, medical record review, document preparation, and more. Sun Inc. can assist in a variety of legal matters using knowledge and experience that makes it easier to navigate the law, whether you're an individual or business looking to exercise your rights, or an attorney who needs some extra litigation assistance. Find out more about all that Sun Inc. has to offer by checking out their website at suninccorp.net. That's S-U-N-I-N-C-O-R-P dot net. Or give them a call at 973-932-6031. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court released its first ever code of conduct governing the behavior of the justices. The code was released after intense public scrutiny over ethics on the high court. The justices claim that the new code codifies what they've been doing all along and should dispel public misunderstandings about judicial ethics. But does it do enough? Here to discuss it is our Supreme Court reporter, Katie Bueller. Katie, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I want to really get into this actual code, but I think we probably need to start by taking a, a little mini step back and just sort of doing a lay of the land about how we got here and how the justices felt that they needed to put out a code of conduct. Yeah. So over the past uh, year and a half, basically, we've seen a lot of reporting on potential ethics violations or, or lapses by some of the justices um, that really started back in, in April of last year with the revelation of Justice Clarence Thomas's decades-old relationship with Harlan Crow, a Republican billionaire who paid for a lot of trips and, and gifts for Justice Thomas that Justice Thomas didn't disclose on his financial reports. Um, since then, there's been numerous other reports about um, other justices and potential ethics violations. And federal lawmakers have also added to the, the drumbeat or the calls for uh, ethics reform at the high court by introducing bills that would either expand the court establish term limits or require the justices to establish a, a code of ethics. 
And so I think those two combined have really put pressure on the justices to answer the calls publicly. And this comes because unlike other sitting judges, the justices didn't have a written code of conduct like this before. Yes. Yeah, that's right. They had rules that they never really spelled out that they said that they followed, but this is the first time that they've actually publicly laid out what rules and guidelines they will follow ethics-wise. Well, so let's get into it. What are the highlights of this new ethics code? Yeah, so the um, the main highlight, like I said, is that they've publicly stated the rules and guidelines that they will follow. But also a major part of the code of ethics is that uh, is situations where justices should think about recusing themselves from certain cases, including if they've worked on the case or the issue in the past, or if maybe a family member or their spouse would benefit somehow from the case. But that also comes with a caveat that the justice's rule of necessity will potentially outweigh recusal just because there is no backup justices or other judges that they can call on, the rule of necessity of them sitting on every case really will have a thumb on the the scales. I know you talked to a lot of ethics experts and court watchers about exactly what this code means and if it is sort of the panacea that the justices hope it will be for ethics concerns. What did you hear back from people about it? Ethics professors say that the code itself is structurally appropriate and reasonable. It's based on uh, the code of ethics that all other federal judges abide by. But really, its Achilles heel is that there is no enforcement mechanism. And without that enforcement mechanism, they call the code more um, a list of suggestions that the justices themselves have authority to enforce. So it really doesn't change the status quo. Yeah, I mean, when you combine that rule of necessity with the idea that there's no firm enforcement here, you can see all sorts of, I don't want to call them loopholes, but just maybe blind spots around what the justices can do under this new code. Yes, definitely. There's definitely some blind spots or or loopholes or ways to get around some of these ethics codes. And on top of that, you reported that there are also some language choices that people are questioning. Let's get into those. Yes. So along with no enforcement mechanism, ethics professors also pointed out to me various vague or broad uh, language that the justices used in the code that give them kind of leeway to decide uh, whether something is actually a ethics violation or that needs to be um, disclosed. So one of those is that the code uses the word knowingly or various forms of the word know to add an element of intent to some of these violations. So for example, a justice shouldn't be a speaker or guest of honor at a fundraising event, but in the code, it, it adds that word knowingly to it. So They can't knowingly be a speaker or guest of honor, um, and it kind of gives them that excuse of if they didn't know going into the event that they were going to be on the bill for it. Uh, The code also uses several vague terms that it doesn't define. So uh, another provision 
tells justices that they shouldn't speak to groups that a normal person could see as creating a conflict of interest or something like that. But the justices are allowed to speak to groups of students, bar groups, nonpartisan scholarly groups, and educational groups, but they don't define those words. So it's not certain whether certain conservative or progressive organizations that maybe a layperson would see as being partisan would be covered by that uh, provision. Again, we have lots of ways that this seems like it's not fully addressing the question of what the justices can and cannot do. Uh, Given those deficiencies, did the experts you talked to think that this code will actually quell some of the public outcry around ethics on the court? Or is this just putting a big old spotlight right on the problem? The overall feeling is that while it's a good step in the right direction, it ultimately won't quell any concerns or um, maybe have lawmakers take a step back in, in their proposals. The, the written code will help the public and journalists and lawmakers keep the justices more accountable by being able to point to specific provisions when they are criticizing certain decisions the justices make. But other than that, um, since there is no enforcement mechanism, this really won't, like I said, change anything. Since it really won't change a lot, I also am curious about, is this code of ethics similar to what the justices in, or sorry, the judges in lower courts are subjected to? Or are there key differences here? Because that language you talked about around knowing that things would violate it, that sort of thing, seems very loose to me. For the most part, it is a copy and paste of what the lower court judges have to abide by. The biggest distinction I was told about was that for the disqualification provisions, um, the lower court judges' code of conduct uses the word shall, which is a requirement that they will disqualify themselves for certain issues. And in the same context, the the Supreme Court used the word should. So again, it's uh, a suggestion more than a requirement. And they use the word should a lot throughout the entire code of conduct. So that's where um, ethics professors really pointed out that it's more of a suggestion than a set of hard and fast rules. The irony of the Supreme Court's own code having language that can be debated in this way or that is maybe a bit imprecise when this is the kind of stuff they rule on all the time is not lost on our listeners, I'm sure. Oh, boy. A very good point. Well, so what happens next here? I guess more broadly speaking about Supreme Court ethics. I know there are still some proposed bills about this in Congress. What are we watching on the horizon? There are several pieces of legislation pending in in the Senate and the House of Representatives that would initiate reforms for the high court, but they, they likely won't receive bipartisan support. They haven't in the past, and this issue has been very political this year, um, so they likely won't receive bipartisan support. On top of that, the the Senate Judiciary Committee is toying with the idea of issuing subpoenas for people like Crow or others who have or seemingly have influence over the justices. 
Um, but that vote has been pushed back several times because of critiques from Republicans and and the like. And then finally, the the chief justice in this code did kind of lead leave the door open for amendments or additions. Chief Justice Roberts said he has directed staff, court staff, to look into the best practices for implementing the code or um, other maybe provisions that they could add to it. Um, So there is room for improvement or addition or changes in the future. We just don't know when or if those will come. So it doesn't seem like this will be the last time we're talking about Supreme Court ethics, and I know you're going to be covering it diligently for Law 360. So we'll have you back, Katie. Thanks so much. Thank you. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, you bring us one from Hollywood. Yeah, well, I, br- I bring you several from Hollywood. And it began as one. I was like, oh, there are a couple little weird, like, movie, TV show legal stories popping up. And now I'm just, I'm just kind of combining them here. A little, little roundup. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, which I think people probably know the most about, is the kind of drama that's brewing at Warner Brothers over Coyote versus Acme. Do you know about this? Uh, Haley, Haley, you're in Tinseltown. Have you heard about this? I, Yeah, wow. You say these stories have to do with Hollywood, which I live basically <laughs> on the edge of Hollywood. And I, nope, I have no idea about this. No, that's fine. I um, So the first thing I want to talk about is Coyote versus Acme. And this is a movie that had been in development and was, as I understand it, wrapped at Warner Brothers. And it is a live action slash animation film, kind of in the vein of Roger Rabbit, Looney Tunes, back in action or whatever, that focuses on the character, the famous Looney Tunes character, Wile E. Coyote, suing the Acme Corporation because he keeps ordering products to kill the Roadrunner, and they keep malfunctioning, as we've seen. This is Beautiful premise. such a good concept. I'm just thrilled already about it, and I don't need more than that <laughs> logline. I want to watch this. It was, it's an incredible idea, and I'm like honestly mad that I didn't think of it myself. But anyway, this was in development and basically finished at Warner Brothers, and then for some reason or another, that I'm reasons that are not very clear to me, Warner Brothers Discovery, which is the conglomerate that controls Warner Brothers now, basically planned to shelve the movie entirely. They thought it wouldn't work. I don't know what that's about. Um, But the point is that by them just entirely not releasing this, it gives them the opportunity to write it off for tax purposes. They can basically either make a profit or save their loss from not releasing it at all rather than opting to release it. And we've seen this a lot in the streaming era. This happened also at Warner Brothers with Batgirl. This happened a couple uh, years ago. But the good news is there's been enough blowback here because people obviously reacted exactly how you did, Amber. And people were like, this is an amazing idea. Why isn't this movie coming out? That they are now shopping it around to other distributors. So it may see the light of day. It better. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. 
I don't love this whole new world we live in where things are disrupted just for the tax write-off. I hate that. Um, yeah. So I hope this gets resolved. Yeah, it's weird. I don't, I mean, and again, I don't, I mean, maybe the movie sucks. I don't know. I haven't seen it. First of all, I celebrate Wile E. Coyote. I sing the guy's praises, for it, like his entire catalog, I celebrate it. Um, <laughs> more to the legal point, though, at least one member of Congress, uh, Texas Democrat Joaquin Castro, has called into question um, this kind of tax strategy that a lot of studios have used, basically calling it predatory and has called for the DOJ and the FTC to think about practices like this as they hone like antitrust guidelines. So we'll see that. That's just a member of Congress, you know, asking for something. But it was interesting to me. The next uh, item, uh, we can breeze through this one pretty quickly, is the um, after the writers and actors strikes were resolved in the last uh, couple of months, there was news there was supposed to be a TV show called The Good Lawyer that was going to be on ABC. And that was a backdoor and that was kind of soft launch as a backdoor pilot from The Good Doctor, which I'm sure we all oh. recognize from our Bachelor viewings. Honestly, I am confused by the choice of the name here. I know it's because it ties to The Good Doctor, but there was also a lawyer show called The Good Wife. So there's too many of these. And that was, yeah, exactly. And that was, a, it, it is confusing. And what will be even more confusing to you in a moment is the fact that, and I didn't know this because I don't watch this show, but The Good Lawyer was supposed to be headlined by none other than like storied pro se litigant subject Felicity Huffman. <laughs> white collar, oh. white collar criminal herself. Yeah, wow. Well, like, you know, art Whoops. imitates life, imitates art. I don't know what's happening here, but would have loved that. One half of Philium H. Muffman, as we as we discussed. <laughs> um, anyway, that's not happening now. Um, <laughs> so no need to really focus on that too much. But the last thing, uh, also from the realm of Hollywood, is that. You know, offbeat savants will remember in episode 291, we covered the trial that ensued from Gwyneth Paltrow's incident on a uh, ski slope in Park City, Utah. She was alleged to have crashed into a, uh, a retired optometrist on the slopes there. And this led to something of a circus, uh, you know, uh, trial and she was exonerated in that trial. And you can listen to that episode where we talk about that a little bit more. But the thing we're, the reason we're talking about it again here is that now it is being uh, adapted into a musical in London called Gwyneth Goes Skiing. Alex, no. that name. Your thoughts. No. Yeah, it, that's Haley, again, we're opposite opinions here. That name is perfection. Gwyneth Goes Skiing. That's so funny to me. <laughs> I mean, I don't would have, watch. I don't have any issue with the title. I just the concept yeah, in general. The concept. <laughs> Come on, this the height of courtroom drama. I hope they make it into a really funny parody. There were a lot of really funny things in that trial to begin with. I mean, if you take there out were. the significant injuries, which <laughs> a little stretch of the imagination there, I guess, to not focus on that. But if you take those away, there were a lot of funny comments. From Gwyneth on the stand and yeah. just lots of Hollywood stuff going on. Making it a musical is very intriguing that's, to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think like, that's my you main could, issue. You could do it a couple different ways. And listen, I'm not here to, like, I support creative adaptations of real events. And I think it can lead to quite interesting 
works of art. And I don't want to say like it's like a bad idea, just full stop. Now that is not to endorse whatever's going to come out of this, <laughs> but I just mean, but I just mean like I'm curious to see what kind of songs you could make. And and I do want to be clear here, as I understand it, it's been written up in the press. It is a musical about the trial. It's not even the incident. So it's like a legal chamber drama as a musical. So yeah, we'll see. I really hope some of the songs, though, are <laughs> sort of, you know, when a witness gets on the stand and they're giving the testimony and they're painting the picture of what happened. Yes. I hope the songs take us almost like flashing to the real events kind of thing. That's what I'm hoping for. I just why couldn't HBO make, you know, some succession style miniseries or something? <laughs> that, Haley, there's room for well, multiple things. That's yeah, true. It just feels yeah. like a better way to parody this. But oh, I'm not a studio executive. Alex, I'm also not a theater executive. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, yeah. you bring me such joy. This was really a great grab bag. That's what I try to do, Amber, every week. And I, I, honestly, especially with this segment, I think I nailed it. So, I think you did too. Yeah. I, this is two weeks in a row. You're really, <laughs> you're really on a roll. I'm so thrilled. Thank you All so right. much, Alex, for bringing this today. Thank you. Always great to be with you guys. And as always, thank you to Haley. Thank you. I also want to give a big thanks to our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our guests this week, Katie Bueller and Carolina Bellato. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That really does help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, that's when you go to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.